0: Well, good morning again. Glad you're here. (laughs) Glad you're here today on this bright and sunny day. Hey, the sun is always shining in Calvary Chapel, Battle Creek. The S-O-N is here. We'll see the S-U-N sometime in March, okay? (laughs) But until then, keep your spirits up. Hey, we're in Matthew chapter 17, 1 through 13. We're in an interesting portion of Scripture the Transfiguration, and I, I just titled this Preview of Coming Attractions. Uh, Jesus is the coming king, and when he comes, he's the coming as the glorified Jesus. He's coming as the as the God-man reigning in the millennial kingdom of Christ. And we're going to learn about the Transfiguration today, and I hope that you are ready to receive from God today what he has for you. So while you are, just prepare your hearts for that. I'm not going to take the 15 seconds this time, but I'm going to ask you to stand And read the word of God with me. Starting in verse 1, chapter 17. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here, if you wish. Let us make, you th- make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came from the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them, and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of God. Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We are thankful to God for the gift of your son. This is the season that we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for his birth, but more than anything, we're thankful for his second coming and his reigning and his saving us and all the things that Jesus did during his life. Thank you for this time that you've given us to study the word of the living God. And Lord, I ask that you will speak to each heart here today, that each one of us will receive from you what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised king. He is coming. He is coming. He is coming. Last time we talked about moments, significant moments. Peter had a moment. Remember, Peter had a moment when he denied Christ. At, at, at three times, if the, as the cock crows twice, you'll deny me thrice. Peter had a moment when he told Jesus, you're not going to die on the cross. I'm going to rescue you. And Jesus said, get you behind me, Satan. Peter had moments. He also had good moments when he walked on water. Peter had good moments and Peter had bad moments. That's life. The disciples had a moment when they said, deny yourself. Take, Jesus told them, deny yourself, take you up your cross and follow me. And then Jesus talked about his glorified moment that we're going to be talking about today. Now, you know that in life there are good moments and bad moments and ugly moments, and we like to remember the good moments, the time that you hit a home run, the time that you had a touchdown, the time that you went, well, I got to give the girls something, so ballet class, you did a ballet recital or something, you know, <laughs> good moments, you did the cheerleading or whatever you did, I don't know what you did, but anyway, there are good moments for us guys anyway, and we remember those, and we try to put away the bad moments, but life is full of good and bad. And you know that also we mentioned last week that life is so much in the daily. It's not good. It's just, it's not bad. It's just life. And you get up, you go to work, you have your coffee, you have, you interact with the people at work. You go through your day. You have hassles during the day. You get home and you're relieved to get home. It's the day. It's the day. There are good moments and bad moments. I want to to share with you just some moments that King David had. And again, this is a review from last week. I didn't mention David. But King David was a great king. He started out, he was anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel. And he wasn't the first choice. There were seven sons. He was the seventh son of Jesse. And they went through the list. And they went through the oldest to the youngest, the biggest to the smallest. And then they ask, Where do you have any, any any other any other sons, Jesse? He says, Yes, the little pipsqueak, he's out in the out in the field with the sheep. Well the pipsqueak ends up being the king of Israel. He's the one that killed the lion and a bear to protect the sheep. He is the one that became the king. He had a marvelous start. He killed Goliath, chopped his head off. Great start. He served in the court of King Saul. He was acknowledged as a great warrior, had victory after victory after victory. He had great moments. He had moments where Saul chased him 13 years. He was kicked at Saul because of jealousy, kicked him out of the court, and chased him for 13 years. Two times during those 13 years, he had the opportunity to kill Saul, and he did not. That was a good moment for him. Good moment. Beginning of David's life was good. And then, in the time when kings go to war... David decided to stay home, and when he stayed home, he got on his rooftop, and as he got on his rooftop, he saw this beautiful woman bathing Bathsheba, who in scripture is always called the wife of Uriah, never the wife of David, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and there he saw, and there he lusted, there he wanted, and there he had, and from the time that he had his tryst, his adulterous affair, his kingdom fell apart. He conspired to have Uriah come home and have sexual relationships with his wife so the baby would be covered up. And Uriah would not do that. So then then he conspired to have Uriah killed. So he was a murderer and an adulterer. And after that time, he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet told him a story, and he points at David and said, You're the man, David. And David repented of his sin. But the baby died, and after this sin, his whole kingdom falls apart. Amnon, his son, rapes Tamar, his half-sister. Absalom is furious because David is passive and doesn't deal with the situation. Absalom waits two years, and then Absalom kills Amnon. He not only kills Amnon, but he takes over the kingdom, And kicks David out of the kingdom. So now David's running for his life. Now then Absalom ends up being killed. And he has nothing but turmoil. Then at the end of his life, he takes a census which cost 70,000 people's lives. See, after his affair with Bathsheba, David was in with God and not in with God. He did things right and he did things wrong. But he wasn't fully committed He continued to repent and that sort of thing, but he had to bear the consequences of his actions. He acted independent of God. And any time you sin and act independent of God, folks, those are consequences. Those consequences will come. And if you repent, sometimes God will cut the consequences short. But there will always be consequences, and some have to be lived out for the rest of your life. And uh, that's just the facts. And you'd ask David this question Was it worth it, David? Was it worth it? And he would answer, Certainly no. And in our lives, when we go off track, we would say, Was it worth it? And I think you would answer, No. The pain was not worth whatever I did for, for the moment. Acting independently of God. We know that there are moments in life where we, like the woman with the demon possessed daughter, cried out to Jesus and said, Lord, help me. When you failed and you cry out, Lord, help me. That moves the heart of God. That moves the heart of God. Lord, help me. First, the greatest moment of all was when Jesus came here to die for your sins. That was the greatest moment of all. And the greatest moment in your life was the day when you acknowledged that tremendous gift that God gave. He gave his son. We call him Jesus, and the day that you said, yes, I believe in you, Jesus, I put my trust in you, that was your greatest day. No home run, no touchdown, no hat trick, no thing that you do will compare with that day. That has eternal consequences. We talked about moments last time. Well, there's going to be a big moment this week. It's the transfiguration. We pick it up in verses 1 and 2, the transfiguration event. It's going to be described after six days, six days since he made the proclamation in verse 28 of last week. Jesus took Peter up on the mountain by themselves, Peter, Peter and his brothers. And the, Let me try this again. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. The participants in this event are the inner circle of Jesus. Peter, James, and John. They are at all the big events with Jesus, and they are go up on the mountain. And it's interesting that Luke adds they go up there to pray, and it also adds that they were all sleepy, just like they were at Gethsemane. This inner circle that gets along with Jesus are sleepy. Peter describes the event in 1 Peter 16, uh, first, First Peter 1, 16 through eighteen. Now I have a picture of where Peter is writing this event from. Now it'll come up on the screen. This right here is the Mamertine Prison. The Mamertine Prison is in Rome. This is where uh, criminals were housed in prior to execution. This is how you got into this cell. You drop through. This there's no rehab here. There's there's no uh, trying to make things better for the prisoner and that sort of thing. You are waiting to die. At a Roman executioner. Now, in that setting, Peter writes these words in 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 and 18. He says this. Now, listen to what he says here. As he's facing death, and this is very important. When you're facing death, you want to know that this whole Christian thing is real. It's not a fabrication. Peter says, this, says these words, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are not fables. When you get ready to die for your faith, you want to know that you are not dying for a fable, something make-believe. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we're eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's special. Eyewitness testimony is key testimony. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. He's talking about the transfiguration here. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. See, Peter's remembering this event as he's getting ready to face his exodus from earth. As Jesus faced his exodus from earth, he's putting his total faith in Jesus Christ. This is, and he heard these words, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven and we were with him on the holy mountain. That's what this is referring to. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. We don't give you fables. We don't give you make-believe stories on the mountain. Now, some people believe this mountain was Mount Hermon in Israel. The Mount, Mount Hermon is the highest mountain in Israel. It's found in the Golan Heights. The highest portion of the mountain is in Syria, the Syrian side. The, the Israel side is about 7,000 feet, 9,000 feet on the Syrian side. And I just wanted to give you a little picture of this. This is actually the mountain. It's a huge mountain. But again, no one knows if this is really the mountain. This just happens to be in the area of Caesarea Philippi. Now, what they do today on this mountain is, as every, every good uh, person that wants to make money, they, they make a ski resort. But this is a real mountain and real skiing in Israel. If you ever go there, you're going to wonder, do they really ski in Israel? Yes, they do on Mount Hermon, on Mount Hermon. Now, why pray? Why pray now? What's going on? I believe that Jesus, now remember, Jesus is God-man. He is fully God, fully man, and I think he's thinking about the sacrifice that lies ahead. Just a few months from that time, his death on the cross, and I think this is a daunting, a daunting feeling for Jesus. Remember, Jesus, again, is fully God and fully man, and in, 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 in his humanity, he senses and he feels what we feel, what Peter felt in the prison, what Paul felt in the prison, what you feel when you're going through distresses, real feelings, real humanity. Robert Dean, in his work, talks about the hypostatic union of, it's a theological term, of Jesus is all God and all man. And he has this picture on his website, and it's this one here. Jesus is the divine Messiah, he is God, and he is human. He is a human. Together, we call this the hypostatic union, the union of two entities together as one, totally God, totally man. That's an important thing to remember. Jesus had two distinct natures, as we'll come up again, one God, one divine, and one human. Now, I want you to think about this jesus set aside his divine privileges while he was here he never ceased being god he's always god he is god incarnate but he willingly set these privileges aside this has a theological term you may want to remember maybe you don't i don't know but uh the word is kenosis kenosis and it's the self-emptying of the use of his divine privileges it's found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. It says this about Jesus. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. That made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. When you look that up in the Strong's or in the Zadiades, that's the kenosis. The word will be right there, kenosis. The self-emptying of his divine privileges. Taking the form of a bondservant, he came like us, coming in the likeness of men one person, two natures, and think about this, forever the God-man. Forever he became man-God. or I always want to put God first. God-man. God-man. That is a sacrifice that he did for us. He became one of us. He experienced this life. He knows what it's like to be here. Those feelings that you have, Jesus had. He was in every way tempted as us, every way tested. He felt it all. Now, what occurred on the mountain? He was transfigured before them. That word transfigured is metamorpho, where we get our word metamorphosis, changed from the inside out. Now, you know the example. We've probably heard this before. It's the butterfly, and the butterfly is going to come up here, and you're going to notice that the butterfly is a nasty-looking caterpillar. This guy crawls across your driveway, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I just like to go, hmm, to the caterpillar. Don't know why, I just, but anyway. But notice this metamorphosis. It, it goes, is nasty, and it's nasty, and oh, it's coming to life. And it's all of a sudden here. And I want to suggest to you that your life is a metamorphosis. We see in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where to be transformed, it, 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 we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Now, you're in a transformation process. Now, I don't know where you are in this line, but I would suggest this is the glorified state. This is the state of perfection. This is when you hatch, and you're perfect. You know when that happens? Heaven. Heaven. But I want to ask you, where are you at in this line? And some people get stuck in Christianity, and they just don't progress. They stay babies, and they stay in this state, and they're just not progressing. And Jesus, of course, wants us to progress to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, to be less like us and more like Him, and one day we'll be in a state of perfection. Now, this is an important concept. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 says this, we're going to be changed, folks. We cannot be in the presence of holiness in this state. We cannot deal, we cannot, God can't even, if He talks to you, you will, you will, you will, you will tremble. If He appears before you, you can't look at Him, you'll just be consumed. He is a holy God. Watch what it says here in 1 John 3, 2. But we know that when He is revealed, when He comes, we shall be like Him. Folks, we're going to be transformed. We're going to be different people. That butterfly, that completed butterfly, is is a picture of the glorified Savior. we shall see Him as He is. Now, what did the glorified Jesus look like? Well, it says in verse 2, His face shone like the sun and clothed, as white as light. Revelation 1.14, the picture is going to come up on the screen. His head, now this is John. John, the revelator. John, the inner circle. John, who had his head laid on Jesus' bosom. John, the one who says, Jesus loves me better than all of them. He's he's a favored one. He sees Jesus, and when he sees Jesus, he sees something that shocks him. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. This is the glorified Jesus. It looks like God the Father. Listen to what Daniel says about God in Daniel 7, 9. And I watched as the thrones were put into place and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. God incarnate. He was transfigured before them. Now, I want to also, this is a kind of a technical point, but he was transfigured before them. That's written in the passive voice. That means the subject receives the action of the verb. That means someone did this to Jesus. He didn't transform himself. And Father, I think, is exposing who Jesus is. His glory is being exposed to these three inner circles. See, they're going to need to know who Jesus is as they're in the Mamertine prison, where Peter and Paul both were housed there. They need to know this when, when, like, Philip is an Indian, he's getting ready to die with the spear through his heart. They need to know this. Why the transfiguration? Jesus was revealing who he really is, God. Jesus would be transformed to his glorified state, his pre-human state. Now, Jesus was looking forward to going back to this glorified state. In the Lord's Prayer, which you find in John chapter 17, verse 5, you'll hear these words. 4 and 5, it says this, I have glorified you on the earth. This is ours. This is literally hours before the cross. I have glorified you on the earth. I have honored you. I have extolled you. I have esteemed you, Father, on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. What was he given to do? To seek and to save the lost and destroy the works of the devil. He completed his work. Folks, you know what I'm going to say next. We all have a work that must be completed that God has given to you. You have given a spiritual gift. You are to do the works that he has called you to do while you can. Maybe you too can say, I have finished the work. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I'm going to go back into my other state. I'm going to go back out of this human form into my glorified form. The disciples needed to know this. We need to know this. The world needs to know, folks, that this King that is coming is the glorified Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords, the one that we will bow before, the one that it says in Philippians that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The majestic Jesus Christ, King Jesus. Now, why Moses and Elijah, verse 3? And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now, first of all, I want you to notice that there's two people here talking with Jesus on the mountain. Both of them dead a long time ago. Well, Elijah didn't die. He was translated, but the, guy, the dude's old, okay? Thousands of years old. He appears as Moses and Elijah. Uh, it's Moses and Elijah appear, appear on the mountain with him. And this does something. This puts the kibosh to soul sleep. Okay, there's a whole segment of Christendom that believes you die, go into the grave, and you, we wait until the, Jesus comes back before the bodies go up to heaven. No, no. The second you breathe your last, you're in the presence of God. Paul made it really clear, absent from the body, present with the Lord, you can have confidence that that is what happens to you. You're not going to be laying in the grave for who knows how long until Jesus comes. No, you know Jesus Christ. You're going to be going to heaven with him, to be live with him. Luke 9, 30 through 31 gives us some insight into this. Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, his exodus, his exodus, his departure, his departure. This is significant. These guys have already had their departure. Moses had his exodus from Egypt and then he died. Elijah was caught up in the chariot and then he was in heaven. He passed from here into a different state. Moses represents, some people believe Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets. Some people believe that Moses represents the Old Testament saints that have died, and Elijah would represent the raptured saints. However, it is, it speaks of Jesus leaving this earth. His time is done, he will be making his exodus. Luke adds this in, in, in verse 931. They talked to him about this, what he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. He's, they're telling him about his crucifixion. They're telling him about his redemptive work, the work of Christ. Now, you won't know what redemption is, but just to review, redemption simply means paid the purchase price. The price is paid, paid in full, the ransom price, Christ's life for our life. Now, when Jesus cried out on the cross, these words, this is this, there were seven cries from the cross, The sixth cry from the cross is, it is finished. And most of the time we will say, it is finished, is tetelestai. It is really teleo, T-E-L-E-O. It means complete, full, resolved. The way we got tetelestai is this. The Romans had a tax document. And when you completed and you paid the tax price, it was stamped on that tax document to tell us die, complete, paid in full. Teleo is a fragment of that word. And I have a picture here that will come up on the screen. I want you to just indelibly imprint this on your minds Jesus died for you, it is finished. The war with God is over for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Remember, everyone's under the wrath of God until they believe in Jesus. It's that simple. Remember, it says that in Romans 5, 9, and 10. We went through that last time. It is finished. The price has been paid in full. You can rest in that if you've really trusted Jesus as your Savior. Now, in verse 4, Peter's going to believe something that you've heard before, kingdom now. Now, he's not a kingdom now theologian, but he believes the kingdom's coming now. Verse 4, then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If you wish, let us have three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, notice what it says here. Oh, I have to read the next one. Uh, No, that's it. Okay. (laughs) Peter is doing something here, and I, I want you to hear these words. Oftentimes we do what is what I'm terming here, I'm making this up, okay? Think speak. We're thinking and then we're speaking. You know, God has given you a filter. You don't have to say everything that you're thinking. But Peter has a little itsy bitsy teeny filter. I mean, as soon as he wants to if he thinks something, he says it He just blurts it right out. I don't know if you can identify with Peter. There's some people in this room that can. I can identify with him. Peter was thinking and again speaking, this must be the kingdom now. And what is the problem with that? Jesus has just told them that he would have to go and die in Jerusalem. Peter's always trying to get out of this whole thing. No death, no cross. Peter, being a good Jew, was familiar with the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Sukkot is what it is called. It's a picture of the kingdom of God. He wanted the kingdom now. Let's build these booths now. Let's tabernacle now. Let's usher in the kingdom now, Jesus. Now, Peter was wrong on a couple of counts. Now, remember, Peter is really sincere. But guess what? You can be sincere and sincerely wrong. Just ask every cult and every world religion. Very sincere, but very wrong. There's one way to God, and that is through Christ Jesus, period, period. But he had had these two things that he did. First of all, he forgot that Jesus told him that he had to go to Jerusalem and die. And secondly, he compares Moses and Elijah with Jesus. He doesn't separate them. He puts them on the same level. That was wrong. That was wrong. Now, there's going to be a stunning moment for Peter, something that will finally close his mouth, shut his mouth, stop speaking, Peter. Watch this verse 5 and 6. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were greatly afraid. The voice of God, greatly afraid on their face. Get the picture while he was still speaking. Peter was just getting warmed up. He, just, he, was, he was going. He was going for it. And then this moment, the visual moment, a stunning bright cloud. A bright cloud overshadowed them. Luke adds, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. The cloud enveloped them. They're in the midst of this cloud, this, 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 this divine cloud. This, as you know, is the Shekinah glory. This is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. Shekinah glory. This, You know what Shekin means? It means to tabernacle with, dwell with. God dwells with his people three ways. Fire, cloud, light. That is the three manifestations. Then, a, then it's not just the cloud, the visual thing, the voice, a voice moment. And this is stunning and this is terrifying. The voice of God. And they hear these words. Now, this isn't like scary words. It's just, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Hear him. He said something similar to that at the baptism, didn't he? He said, so God to Peter, I think, is saying this. Stop talking, Peter. Stop talking. This is a special moment, Peter. This isn't your moment. This is a special moment. The result is that they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. The voice of God the cloud, the glory of God. People do not have a clue about the significance of the holiness of God, that we can't be in the presence of God in the state that we're in. He is holy. He is righteous. We cannot bear it. God spoke, and it was terrifying to the people. Now, how many times do you say and I say that God spoke to me? Now, what I'm saying is this, God spoke, speaks to my heart, He speaks to my inner being, I'm sensing, I have a, a, a sense that this is what God is saying to me, but I have never heard the voice of God saying, Rick, and if He says, Rick, what's gonna, what am I going to do? Ah, gonna, there's going to be terror, right? That's, 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 what, that's what happens. In our depraved, fallen state, we cannot survive that intimate presence of God. I do not believe mere humans can sit in the presence of God. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 18 and 19, at the giving of the Ten Commandments, was a terrifying event for the people of Israel. Watch what it says here. It's going to come up on the screen. The enactment of the law. And it says this, Now all the people witnessed the thundering, the lightning, the flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking when the people saw it. This is an incredible sight, dramatic sight. They trembled and stood afar off. How many times, if God would just just show me something, if I could just see God and talk to him, oh no, you would be in abject terror before that holiness. Abject terror. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. That's how they felt. That's the holiness of God. Hebrews right next to that in 1221, whoever's the author of that wrote this. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So they're asking Moses to intercede and he's trembling and he's scared to death at the presence of God in this manifestation of God. Humans cannot bear the holiness of God. 1 Corinthians 15.50 gives us some insight that I think is important. It says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot go to heaven the way that you are. Just say thank you. Just say thank you. I don't want to go like this. I want to be changed. Changed. And we will be changed in verse 51. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye one-sixth-billionth of a second. That's somebody, somebody's time, this thing. That we will be changed that quick. It's not going to be, I'm going to jump up and beat everybody to heaven because I'm competitive. No, no, no. We're all going there at the same time. Boom. Twinkling of an eye. one 1000000000th of a second. And this mortal pus- must put on immortality. And, folks, then we'll go back to Genesis, where Adam and Eve could fellowship in the form that they were in, face to face with God in a state of perfection. I'm suggesting to you when Adam and Eve sinned, they lost more than fellowship with God. They lost the way that they were, that they, they, that they were made. See, the, the flesh and blood cannot be, in, it cannot be in the presence of God. I think their form changed. They're, now, this is just a Rickism. This isn't in the Bible. This is just me postulating But something significant happened to those two people that went from being unable to be in the presence of God because of sin and being cast out of the garden, being cast out of perfection into this world that we live in, expulsion from paradise. Now, watch what Jesus does. Now, in the terrified state, it's good to know that you have an ally with you. So it goes from terrified to comforted in verse 7 and 8. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. That's an imperative. That's a command. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus touched them. Now, I want you to think about something. When you think touch, think cares. Think comfort. I worked at Children's Hospital for a time. In my training, in a children's hospital, we would have these little kids come in. These kids that were failure to thrive. And these kids that were never nurtured, never held, never touched. And they were just dying because no one touched them. They needed the comfort of a human. Jesus touches us in our area of need, He will always nurture you. Allow Jesus to help you, folks, in your time of need. Don't make Him your last resort, make Him your first resort you have a problem, boom, you go right to Jesus. Jesus knows when his sheep are disturbed and need a touch. Revelation 117 is talking about John again. When John saw the glorified Jesus, he fell at his feet as though he were dead. And Jesus did something special to him. He touched him. He said, John, it's me. It's me. It's okay. Don't be afraid. That's Jesus in our life. The presence of Jesus is is so important as your world caves in. And it will cave in. You know it. You know it. You've seen it happen. When you have no place to turn, when life crushes you, you need a touch from the shepherd. You need a touch from Jesus. And he'll touch you. Bill Gaither wrote a song, He Touched Me. It just says this, Shackled by a heavy burden. Now listen to that. Heavy burden. Neath a load of guilt and shame. Then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And all the joy that fills my soul, something happened. And now I know he touched me, and he made me whole. Jesus can make things better. In the worst of situations, Jesus can make things better. He touched me. Think about Jesus' touch. Think shepherd. Think who is, is the one who is with his sheep and loves his sheep. He even gives you pet names. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, you have a new name, a pet name that you and he know together. The only safe place for the people of God is by their shepherd. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. The only safe place for a sheep is by the side of his shepherd. Because the devil does not fear sheep, he fears the shepherd. Every conflict that you experience, there's always behind that conflict powers and principalities. How do I know? Ephesians chapter 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and dark forces of evil and wickedness and heavenly places. There's a spirit world out there, folks. A spirit world that wants your demise. That's where the fight is. Now, in this fight, and sometimes it's a fight for your life, you want to hear the voice of the shepherd. And I'll tell you, one of my favorite verses is John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, I have a picture here of this guy who heard the shepherd's voice. The whole herd is going their way, but you had one. Remember, there's only, there's only a remnant that hears the shepherd. A lot of people think they, they're in the family of God, but there's only a few. Jesus said it would be that way. I love this picture. Oh, the shepherd has spoken. Yes, I hear you. What a what a what a word. What a picture. And then Jesus says in verse 9, keep it a secret, folks. Don't tell anybody yet. Not yet. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Notice the emphasis here. Don't tell anyone until the Son of Man is risen. What is Jesus telling these disciples? We're gonna, I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to rise from the dead. Five times Jesus told his disciples to keep silent. Don't tell anybody, not yet. Folks, what I've learned from this is there's a time to speak and a time to remain silent. There's a time to speak to dispel the lies that you might be hearing, and there's a time to keep silent and not throw your pearls before the swine. If people aren't going to hear, hold your peace. Test the waters. You have to be discerning. Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you. Too many people, though, play it safe because they don't want to get involved and are reluctant to speak the truth. I would urge you, if you have any unction at all from the Spirit of God and you're churning inside and you're saying, this is not true, I must speak the truth, then be obedient to what the Spirit is telling you to do. Now, verse 10 through 13, how does Elijah and John the Baptist play into this whole thing? And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Just like John suffered, Jesus will suffer. John died, Jesus died. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them. Of John the Baptist. Now, Elijah's coming first. The key verse for this is Malachi 4, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Elijah will come before the Messiah. He will come. Watch what it says. Behold, this is the prophet speaking. Now, if it is prophesied in the Old Testament that it will happen, do you think it's going to happen? Let me try that again, okay? If something is prophesied in the Old Testament by a prophet of God, do you think it's going to happen? Yes, there we go. Get it. Make sure that's recorded. Yes. Yes. Yes, affirmative. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, the dreadful day of the Lord is the 7-year tribulation period that the world will go through through tumult like never in the history of the world. The believers won't go through this. I believe the believers will be extracted before that time frame. But it is going to be so awful that Jesus said, "If unless he intervened, no flesh would be saved alive. That's the tribulation period. He will come before that dreadful day of the Lord. What will he do? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Malachi is the last Old Testament writing prophet. For 400, Now, the, the nation has already deteriorated at the time of Malachi. Now, there's 400 years where there's no word from God, no prophet, until Matthew. When Matthew comes, Jesus comes on the scene. So, that 400 years has caused the nation to further digress. In Matthew, John the Baptist was a type of Elijah. That's what he's referring to. In verse 12, Elijah has already come. Speaking of John, had the Jewish people received Jesus as the Messiah, John the forerunner would have fulfilled the type of Elijah, but they rejected him. Remember, the kingdom was postponed because of the rejection of Jesus. But Elijah will come before the day of the Lord. This guy is going to appear before the tribulation starts to turn the hearts of the people back to God. Now, remember, Elijah might be one of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. Remember, you have this guy that looks a lot like Moses and this guy that looks a lot like Elijah. Now, we don't know that these two are Elijah and Moses, but I think it's a pretty good supposition. It could be that way. But Elijah called fire down from heaven. Elijah had no rainfall, just like he did with Ahab. Whatever it is, Elijah will come. Now, the Jewish people at their Passover have a place set. It's an Elijah chair and an Elijah cup, expecting Elijah to come back before Messiah comes. Now, closing thoughts. Jesus was giving his inner circle special information, who he really is, God incarnate. Peter, James, and John, God incarnate. Don't tell anybody about this. After the resurrection, tell everybody. Tell everybody. Make sure they know what you saw. Jesus is God, folks. The transfiguration is, he is God incarnate. The transfiguration, folks, is a God moment. Jesus is God. And I want to build on something here. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31. I'm, I'm, I'm building this because there is no fear of God today, virtually no fear, no thoughts about God, or we just make God up as a, a teddy bear God, not the holy God that I've tried to describe here. Now, the context that this verse is written in is the following. It, it deals with, it speaks of those who sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Hebrews 10:26 says this, of how much worse punishment do you suppose? to those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. How much worse punishment? And that punishment is vindictive wrath. This isn't discipline to believers. That's vindictive wrath to those who have rejected and rejected Jesus. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. That's the context. Now, the question is, that I want to just pose to the group so you to ponder is what has happened to the fear of God? What has happened to the fear of God? It's almost non-existent today. God is virtually ignored in most parts of our world. forgotten. The Hebrew word for fear, you've heard this multiple, multiple times, is yare, Y-A-R-E. Why is that significant? Because it doesn't just mean tremulous fear, which it could mean. But it also means awesome respect. Where is the awesome respect for God today? Where is the awesome respect for God in His church today? When the church tries to emulate the world, tries to be like the world, to attract the world, where is the fear of God today? There was no fear of God in Noah's time, folks, and I don't believe I think the fear of God is just just, just dwindling away in our culture today. As it was in the days of Noah, folks, it will be at the second coming of Christ. They were eating and they were drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, it says in Peter. And yet no one heard him. The crazy guy building the boat out here in the middle of the desert talking about something called the flood. Remember, there was no rain. There was never a flood before. The dude's talking about crazy stuff. Look at him out there. Oblivious. Going about their business. God who? God who? Who, who, who? What God are you talking about? They could care less. Many today worship a made-up God. A God of their fancy. A God of their fabrication. A God that will do everything their way. Making them God. And I want to ask you a question for a country that was built on Judeo-Christian ethics. The Constitution is embedded with biblical principles. Where is the awesome respect for God in America? Where is the fear of God? God, as a curse word, just rolls off the tongues of people. Just rolls off the tongues of people. I want to suggest to you something. As our nation runs from God, I hope you run to God. As our nation implodes, and it's imploding, you can see it now, may our hearts explode with awesome respect for God. Let everyone know whom you serve. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's what Paul said in Romans 1.16 or so. Yes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I hope you aren't either. May the world see that we are still the people of God, a people dedicated to the God, a people that will not be mesmerized by the charms of the world. There are a few. There are a few, folks, a few. There is a remnant that fear him, respect him, honor him, esteem him, a few. Jesus said it would be this way, a few. These few have a promise that the world does not have. The promise is special, and it'll be especially special as we go forward. It's the presence of God, the presence of God, no matter what comes in your life. That's his promise. We're living in an era of disinformation. There's three phases, actually, to persecution. Disinformation, discrimination, which we're into that phase right now, and then overt persecution, where they kill you, throw you into prison. We haven't reached that yet here. But as I've said multiple times, the world experienced this in abundance. In abundance. The promise that God has His everlasting eye on you, His people, is exceedingly important as we go forward. The psalmist says it well. Psalm 33 18 through 21. Come up on the screen. It's a beautiful verse. Behold. The eye of the Lord. Yahweh. Is on those who fear him. And let that indelibly imprinted in your mind. The, his eye is on those who fear him. As a condition. On those who hope in his mercy. To deliver their soul from death. And keep them alive in famine. Folks this is tragedy. Whatever it may form it might take our soul waits for the lord that's what we wait for in this awful time our full our soul waits for the lord he is our help and our shield for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name and oh let your mercy let your mercy O lord be upon us just as we hope in you this is what we want the mercy of god the presence of god As we go through these soul-wrenching experiences, we must remember there is a kingdom coming. We saw a preview of it this week, Jesus in his glorified state. And believe me, there is a king that is coming. As much as people try to repress this, I think that intuitive people know that things are changing in our world. I believe that every person knows something is very off kilter here. The eye of the Lord is on you as you fear him who hope in his mercy and watch and wait. Second Chronicles 16.9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord range about the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Did you catch it? Strengthen those hearts who are fully committed to him. How many Christians today are fully involved? fully committed the fully committed will have their hearts strengthened the vast majority of christians are not fully committed to anything but themselves that's the truth his eyes are running to and fro to strengthen those to strengthen those that's what you need the holy spirit rod of iron up your spine to stand the fear of the lord folks is the beginning of wisdom proverbs 9 10 in our world today, we are now seeing many, many, many previews of coming attractions. They're happening all around us. You saw it when Israel became a nation. You saw it when, with the ability to totally destroy earth. Jesus said, lest these days be cut short, no flesh will be saved alive. We had 12 of those things in the handout that Ted Betts made. The real attraction, folks, is knocking at the door. This would be Messiah. Messiah's footsteps are getting louder and louder. I want you to think about something in one minute. If the world needed an economist, God would have sent an economist. If the world needed technology, he would have sent a technological guru. If the world needs an art dealer, they would have sent an artsy person. But the world needed a savior, and so he sent Jesus, his son, to die for us. And now we're waiting for the king to come back for us. I want to finish with these words. Think about how special God is. Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power. Ah, Lord God, you shall reign forever and ever. Ah, Lord God, you have called to yourself an army of ordinary people, the people of God, And our Lord God, may the people of God, all hail King Jesus. All hail Emmanuel, King of kings, Lord of lords, bright morning star. May we all hail King Jesus. Would you please stand with me? And we're going to sing that song right now. And then I'll close in prayer. And sing it with gusto. King he- Given us to hail King Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, bright morning star. Throughout all eternity, we will praise him. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son. Thank you for this teaching today. Lord, you have a group of people here that still have a healthy fear of God, an awesome respect for our God, an awesome love for our God. May we be the people of God that run to him. May we be the little sheep. Then we hear his voice, our head pops up, no matter where we are. Oh, the master's calling, the master's calling. Where do you want me to go, Jesus? If I follow you. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Oh God, that we would be the people of God that follow you and do what you've called us to do. Thank you for this time. Lord, I know that you've spoken to our hearts here today. May we not just be hearers, but doers of what you have told us. Thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.